God is faithful, but our computer is not. <laughs> her name was Jennifer, cute little girl, and when Jennifer was a year and a half old, her parents came to church one Sunday and announced that they had been to the doctor for some tests, and the parents' worst fears were realized. Jennifer would never quite grow up. She would grow physically, but there was something wrong in the connections between the brain and the body that would not allow her to grow emotionally, socially, or intellectually. She'd be about this age for the rest of her life. She would mature physically, but mentally and emotionally would remain about a year and a half. We expect children to grow up and mature. It's natural, and when they don't, it's a tragedy. And in the Bible, there's an expectation that Christians will mature and grow, and when they don't, it's tragic. Paul said to the Corinthians, you're still carnal. Yeah, you can speak in tongues and you've got a lot of talent and ability and you have an alive worship service, but you're not spiritual. The Hebrew writer says, by this time, you ought to be teachers. Instead, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Loose paraphrase, you're still babies. Grow up. Young parents don't mind changing diapers and wiping noses and cleaning up messes when the baby is young, but they do it, assuming they won't have to do it when the child's 15 years old. It's the same with God. He doesn't want to have to change our diapers the rest of his, our lives. So, sometimes Christians grow older, but we never really grow up. And, and we get stuck in perpetual spiritual infancy. Attitudes haven't changed. Knowledge hasn't been increasing. They're no more fruitful today than they were 30 years ago. So today we're in chapter 22 of the story, which is the start of the New Testament. And the New Testament begins with the story of Jesus. And I'm calling this series of messages Jesus for President for two reasons. First of all, I'd vote for him. I think most of you would vote for him. And second of all, he already is. He is already the most powerful man on the planet. And today we're going to look at his formative years, the years leading up to his candidacy and eventual presidency, how he matured and grew. And I want his maturity to become a, a motivation and an inspiration for our maturity. Now, in chapter 22, we have three stages of Jesus' life. First of all, in John 1, we have the pre-earth Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. So Jesus was at the start of everything. Way back in Genesis, He was in the beginning, present at creation, and through Him, creation came about. It's an amazing text. He is God, meaning He is eternal. Jesus existed long before the birth in Bethlehem. And then Luke 1 and 2 and Matthew 1 and 2 are the birth of Jesus, the familiar Christmas story, the announcement to Mary and Joseph and the birth in Bethlehem, the shepherds and the magi, you know. And one word is mentioned three times in, in these accounts, and that's the word virgin. Because Jesus' birth was to the Virgin Mary, and it came about through the Holy Spirit. His birth was like no other. And then Luke 2, 41 to 52 are the formative years of Jesus. And we have... An extensive account of his birth, a lot of chapters given to that, and then his ministry starts in age 30, and we have a lot of scripture for that. But in between those two, between his birth and ministry at 30, we have only this one incident recorded about his childhood when he's 12 years old. So we have very little information about the formative years. And because of that, there's been a lot of curiosity what Jesus was like when he was a child. What was he like when he was a teenager? Did he have zits? Did he throw tantrums? Uh, was he a perfect kid, which would be an oxymoron, probably? You know, did he have a crush on girls? And people have been curious down through the ages, so some legends about Jesus, his childhood grew up later on. One legend, for instance, says that when he was five years old, he formed 12 sparrows out of clay and then clapped his hands and said, be gone, 
and they magically came to life and flew away. Another legend says that a boy accidentally ran into Jesus, and Jesus got mad and said, you shall go no further, and the boy fell down dead. Now, there's absolutely no foundation for any of that, but people wanted to know, and they would speculate what was Jesus like during those growing up years. But the only mention is Luke 2, 41 to 52. Let's read that. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival, the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them some questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why are you searching for, were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. Pretty unspectacular account. No miracles, no special revelations. In fact, he's a very human boy, it looks like. And they go to this feast of the Passover. You remember that way back toward the beginning of the story. I think it's chapter 3 when Israel was set free from slavery and the Passover was instituted. Well, here, 1,500 years later, the Jews are still observing it. Of course, they still do today. It was their most important feast. Passover is when Jesus will eventually set us free from our slavery, when he will die as the lamb. But what's going on here in the temple? Was Jesus trying to begin his ministry too early? At the age of 12, trying to rush things? Or maybe he was sending a signal to his parents that he was destined to be God's ambassador, he's going to be the next president. A Jewish reader would read this and probably think of another man in the Old Testament, Samuel, who was given over to the temple and says he grew in stature and favor with the Lord and with men. Joseph and Mary faced the same issues we, they, everyone else did then. Who is this kid? Who, who is Jesus? They've been raising him for 12 years. He's so human, but he's... I'm guessing he was probably a little different. He's like the other boys, but not quite like them. I don't know what's going on, but I do know it looks like Jesus was already mature beyond his years at age 12. Apparently, he still needed more growth, but he was answering and doing some stuff with the teachers there. So he goes home with the parents because he needed more growth, and he spends another 18 years there while he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. God expected him to grow, and God expects us to grow, to mature. Grow up. We're all in the formative years. If you're 90 years old, you're still being formed. You're still being shaped, and hopefully you're still maturing. I like this ad in the paper. It says, extremely independent male, 17 years old, needs to rent room. Call his mother at... <laughs> yeah, we think we're mature and independent, uh, but call mommy. You know, today, I want us to do an honest self-assessment. Where am I in these four areas where Jesus matured? Like Jennifer, we might grow physically, but not necessarily mentally or emotionally or socially. Someone once said, you're only young once, but you can be immature forever. Not what God intended for any of us. So I want to challenge us to not just get older, but to grow. Jesus grew in stature. He got taller, bigger, and stronger. He grew physically. And one area where God expects us to be mature is in the area of physical health because we are embodied beings. If you think about it, everything we do involves the body in some way. 
And when your body is unhealthy, it's going to affect you spiritually, emotionally, and socially in, in every other way. Your body is also the temple of the Holy Spirit, the dwelling place of God on earth. The old Jewish temple was immaculate. God's people cared for it. They put all their best resources into it, and they did everything they could to maintain it well because God lived there. Well, now God lives in you, and your body is the temple on earth. The church, his people, is also the temple on earth. And some of us, frankly, need to commit to a little healthier lifestyle. Take care of the temple and make some changes. Two-thirds of Americans are overweight, and I'm one of them. One-third of obese, and as we get older, it gets more and more of an issue. You know, the older you get, the tougher it is to lose weight because by then your body and your fat are really good friends. Even 25% of our pets are obese. Now, I'm like most people. I believe the best way to eat vegetables is to let the cow eat it first and then eat the cow, you know. Or the idea of a balanced diet is a donut in both hands. And we joke about our physical bodies. We know we should do better. We should exercise. One study says that for every mile you jog, you add one minute to your life. To which one guy said, yeah, that enables you at 85 years old to spend an additional five months in the nursing home at $5,000 a month. Another said, my grandmother started walking five miles a day when she was 60. She's 97 now and we don't know where on earth she is. (laughs) I don't know if I should do this next one. The only reason I would take up jogging is so that I could hear heavy breathing again. I shouldn't have said that, no. (laughs) One of the goals that we can have, and I think maybe we should have, for these 21 days of prayer and fasting is commit to healthier living. Uh, Maybe give up processed sugar for 21 days, go on a Daniel fast. Uh, There's several different options. Most of you will get that letter with different options for you. But don't do it for yourself. I get so tired. Do it for yourself. Do it for, I get so tired of hearing that. Do it for God. You know? Do it for the sake of honoring him with your body because your body is the temple of God. It's his body. It's not yours. And you are a steward of it. And when you take care of your body, you can grow in these other areas, spiritually, emotionally, and socially. Some of you need to rest. You're tired. You run down. You go, go, go. The only time you can sleep is during the sermon. Um, that's bad but what's really bad some people are proud of their busyness you know I'm so important because I'm so busy and busyness becomes our badge of honor well there's times busyness is the right thing to do but there's times it isn't Jesus did not say come to me and I'll give you one more thing to do come to me and I'll give you yeah rest what if there were a law where everyone had to take a Sabbath everyone has to take a day off one day a week no work No stores open, no sports, no go, go, go. Just rest, read, pray, worship, socialize. What would the world be like? Some of you are old enough to remember days like that. Here's my guess. Yeah, no cell phone. I think we'd be kinder. I think we'd be a little more patient. We'd probably live longer. Now, this would be after we get over the initial shock of not doing anything for a day. I mean, most of us go into withdrawal symptoms, you know, for for quite a while. But, But we'd be healthier, we'd be happier, we'd worry less. Archibald Haar is a Christian psychologist, says if history teaches us anything, it's that spiritual formation and hurriedness are not compatible. When I'm rushed, I'm rude. When I'm hurried, I'm harried. So stop. Just take a break once in a while. One thing I plan to do during these 21 days is go to Kickapoo Park over in Lincoln for half a day, just be with God, you know, read and think. And I can't wait. Doesn't that sound great? The great danger for most people is not that they'll renounce their faith, that they'll become atheists. The biggest danger for most of us is we become distracted and rushed and preoccupied and busy and so, so much that we will settle for a mediocre version of faith. 
Jesus matured physically because our physical well-being is important to our spiritual and emotional well-being. God also expects us to grow intellectually in wisdom. The leaders in the temple were amazed at his understanding and his answers at the age of 12. And then when we see Jesus' ministry as a man, again, he just seems to know the wise thing to do. He knows when to speak and when not. He knows what needs to be said at the right time. He's always appropriate to the situation. We often call Solomon the wisest man who ever lived. Eh, I think Jesus gets that moniker. And one source of Jesus' wisdom was the Bible. He knew God's word. And we'll see that especially next week how he depended on the word when he's in t- time of temptation. Um, my mom did not graduate from high school. And she didn't have a lot of education. I think she got through her sophomore year or something like that and then had to work. But, but she knew the Bible. And I remember her spouting so much wisdom to us when we were kids out of the word because of this book. And that really was the foundation of our upbringing, the foundation of our education. Uh, Jesus told the story of two men who built houses. One was rock, one was on the sand. And the one on the rock stood firm and the one on the sand fell flat. The one was wise, the other was foolish. And that rock of wisdom was, according to Jesus, he who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. The book. This book tells me I'm, I'm supposed to go to someone who's hurt me, even though I'd rather gossip about them. And when I do what the book says, I have the joy of a restored relationship, or at least the joy of a clear conscience. It's the wise thing to do. This book tells me to give money rather than be selfish, so I can know the joy of a generous heart. And the Bible's right. It is wiser to be generous than to be greedy. This book tells me to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Wow, that's wise. The Bible tells me to rebuke only and love, not in anger. The Bible tells me to give up my rights, that some things just aren't worth fighting over. The Bible tells me that worry is foolish and unnecessary. Wisdom means I make better decisions, obviously. Today we have lots of information. We're in the information age, you know. I I don't know, information is doubling every six months or some crazy thing like that. But there's not a lot of wisdom. So we have books coming out like Whatever Happened to Common Sense and The Death of Common Sense. Someone once said the two most common elements in the universe are hydrogen and stupidity. So we have access to all this information, yet we seem to know less, largely because we've lost the wisdom of God's word. So if you want a wise life, start here. Some other sources of wisdom, of course, are listening. You cannot learn if you're always talking. The best thinkers are usually more reflective and contemplative. And again, in these 21 year, days, maybe some of you need to aim to just talk less. I'm going to, for 21 days, just talk only when necessary and listen more. Reading, reading not only implants new ideas, it stimulates the brain, it keeps it exercise, keep learning. Um, I've been told, by the way, 60 is the new middle age. Hallelujah, I just turned 60, so good news. But then I heard that middle age is where narrow hips and broad mind trade places. Not good news. Keep reading, that won't happen. Experience, learning from life, finding a mentor, a person who you respect can bring you some valuable wisdom, someone you can learn from. See, no one builds a house that they plan that it'll crash. No one plans on becoming a fool. No one plans on a life headed toward destruction, but many do because they've not grown in wisdom. They've just grown older. God also expects us to grow spiritually. Jesus grew in favor with God. God said, you will be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, in the next chapter, we'll see that one of the first things that Jesus does before he begins his ministry is a 40-day fast. And we're going to fast. We're not going to do 40 days. We're not Jesus, so we'll do 21 days. But the primary reason is to grow spiritually. You don't fast just for physical reasons. You fast to get closer to the Lord. 
In Daniel 10, that might be something you want to read in preparation for this. Uh, Daniel goes into a three-week period of fasting and prayer. And as he's praying and fasting, heaven is in a war. And his prayers are making a difference, even though he doesn't see anything going on in those 21 days. It's, it's in a different dimension. So there's two great forces battling in this other dimension, the spiritual forces of darkness against the angels of God. And fasting and prayer is Daniel's role in that battle. Fasting and prayer is the link between heaven and earth. In Ephesians 1, Paul prays that our eyes would be open, that surpasses knowledge. We need the eyes open to a, to a different world, the spiritual world, how prayer activates these heavenly forces. And all through the Bible, fasting is an important part of the warfare. It's common in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. Jesus assumed his disciples would fast. His disciples did fast. We need to do it. See, desire for food is one of the strongest motivational forces at work in the Bible or in, in their body. If you combine natural desire, that natural desire for food, by fasting with a spiritual desire for God, it gives greater intensity to my hunger for God. And that's really the goal of fasting. The hunger uh, pains serve as a reminder of your hunger for God and your need for Him and your dependence upon Him. It's also a sign of sincerity and urgency. But we just don't do that much in our culture, not in Western society. And I want to give you a couple reasons for that neglect. First of all, we tend to separate the spiritual from the physical, which the Bible never does. We think that what we do with our body doesn't really affect the soul, and that is just a lie. Communion and baptism are very physical acts that you know, all churches do, but it's also a very spiritual act. They are the physical and spiritual brought together. Now, you can take communion or be baptized, and it doesn't mean a thing, of course. And you can fast, and it doesn't mean a thing. It has to be with a focus with a purpose so we tend to separate these two which the bible doesn't second reason we neglect it we live in an undisciplined culture fasting doesn't feel good and our culture is a feel-good culture and that mentality enters into the church and we want to make worship so people will feel good when they leave and you know that's okay there is joy in the christian life and there's blessing but there's also discipline and self-control and one of the signs of the times is we're a whole lot better at fellowshipping than we are at fasting Announce a fellowship dinner. Yeah, let's do it. Let's eat. You know, fasting? Mm, I don't know about that. I'm hoping that we will have an excess surplus of donuts on Sunday morning because everyone's giving up bad food. We'll see. Let me give some suggestions for this. Begin small. Don't begin with a total 21-day fast. If you're a beginner, fast for maybe one meal or one meal a week or maybe for half a day or maybe 24 hours. Make it doable. But it also has to be somewhat painful, has to be some hurt, there needs to be some sacrifice associated with it. When you give up food, there can be some headaches, there can be some stomach growling and some weakness, but those pains are a reminder, again, who your provider is. They can be a trigger mechanism for you to pray or to praise God. When you're missing that meal, you can be feasting on God's word. So begin small. Be positive. This is not a punishment. This is an opportunity to get closer to God. It helps you focus your prayers and be more sensitive to God's presence. Expect it to be hard, but also expect it, uh, that you be, get closer to God. You'll also find out that you appreciate food so much more, and it tastes better. When you miss a meal, use that time to pray and read. Be positive, and then fast from other distractions. This may be a real key for you. Ellen and I are going to turn off the TV for 21 days. Just fast from that. Some of you should get off Facebook for 20 days, 21 days. Maybe you need to take a fast from eating out and uh, give the money to missions or to a food pantry that you would save from eating out. Maybe you need to do some financial fasting and no shopping for three weeks, except 
groceries. Maybe you need to tithe for three weeks. Give 10% to God. See how, that, see how that feels. See, it has to fit you, and that's why we're going to give you several options in this letter that's coming out. If you're 90s years old or if you're a teenager, you need to be careful about the food fasting, you know, what you do. If you've got diabetes, obviously you've got to be careful of that. If you've got six kids at home, what you do will probably be a little different than empty nesters. The elders just want to challenge everyone to do something out of the ordinary to get a closer walk with God to grow spiritually. And hopefully, it won't be just for 21 days. It'll carry over, and we'll get some habits developed that will be helpful to us. See, we're in a spiritual battle. Satan is after you. He's after your family. He's after your mind. He's after your heart. And in some cases, he's winning. And you cannot do it on your own. So much is beyond our control. And with prayer and fasting, we're entering into the battle of another realm, and we're wanting to get closer to God, tap into his presence and his power. And then God expects us to grow socially in favor with man. If our horizontal relationships are not healthy, our vertical will not either. Some of you need to develop socially within the church. Be more involved and committed to the body of Christ. Maybe get into a class or a small group or volunteer for a ministry. Get into accountability with some other believer. Some of you just need to attend church regularly. See, God's word gives you the truth and the wisdom you need to grow. God's people give you the support and the encouragement and sometimes the challenge you need to grow some need to resolve conflict might be with a family member might be with a church family member i know it's easier to go to another church you know just run away than it is to face it but that's not maturity you will not grow if you don't face it head on jesus said love your enemies he wasn't serious was he i think he was i don't think he was kidding that's maybe the supreme maturity as far as socially, when you can love those who don't love you. Christ died on the cross, forgave those who were murdering him as they were murdering him. If you cannot resolve conflict, you're still a child. Grow up. Something to develop a relationship with outsiders, non-Christians, unchurched people. If all your friends are inside the church, you become cloistered. You know, can I name one friend who's outside of Jesus? If not, we need to grow in favor with those who are outside, of, outside the walls of the church. Ellen and I have been going to more ball games, you know, and we see people. Obviously, we don't see a church. The boys' basketball team had a great season, and the girls' seventh-grade team is in the state finals. Yeah, so that, congratulations to them. But it's just good to be around other people who are not churchy. And I love churchy people. I love all of you. But anyway, outsiders. Physically, intellectually, spiritually, socially. I read a book a while back called The Emotionally Healthy Church. And it talked about an imbalanced spirituality that can happen. How we can mature in some ways but not others. Someone might write, read and study the Bible and pray and be spiritually mature but not mature in other ways. For instance, an elder who cannot apologize. Or a Sunday school teacher who constantly criticizes. Or control freaks in the youth program. Or the 35-year-old husband of two toddlers busily serving in the church, unaware of his wife's loneliness at home. Or the person who's up front singing but never reads the Bible or seldom prays. Or the member who says, the longer I come to this church, the more demands I have the right to make. See, all those people would be considered mature spiritually because they're consistently in church. Some of them are leaders, they're faithful, they volunteer. But something's wrong. You may have one aspect of maturity, but remain an infant in others. And so, so when I read this text, it really clicked. Jesus didn't just mature spiritually. He had this balanced growth intellectually, wisdom, socially, emotionally, 
physically. And a person who's growing and healthy in all these areas is able to heal broken relationships, able to build up healthy ones. His mind begins to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He treats his body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. He has this balanced growth. 21 days can be a time to grow in all four of these areas. Physically, some self-discipline with food, exercise, rest. Socially, forgiveness and relationships, praying for the lost, committing to the body of Christ, the church, making friends with someone outside the body. Intellectually and in wisdom, getting into his word, uh, being a better listener, reading some good books. And spiritually, spending time with God and in his word, and listening to Christian music, worshiping. You're only young once, but you can be immature forever. Not what God intended. 2014 is a signature year in my life. I recently hit my 60th year, so I'm probably about two-thirds of the way to death if I'm lucky. And the big question for me and for all of us is, am I any more mature today than I was last year or 10 years ago? And will I be any more mature by this time next year, or will I just be a year older? We're all in our formative years, and the more we grow, the more we can minister, the more fruit we will produce, and we can accomplish the mission that he has for us. Let's pray. God, you have given us brains, you've given us emotions, you've given us other people, all avenues for growth. You've given us numerous opportunities and ways for us to mature in all four of these areas, And I pray that we will enter into a time of growth as we approach the Easter season, and not just for a few weeks, but for our whole lives, that will be one of continual listening and learning and broadening of our love for you and for others. Lord, I pray we grow in patience, we grow in our wisdom, we grow in understanding. Lord, I just pray like Jesus, we grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Amen.